You're very welcome back to News Talks on the Record with me, Kieran Cudahy, and time now for more hidden histories. The adventure spirit raised to supreme heroism was personified by the five men who returned. Four Germans, one Scot, clawed and hacked their way up the impossible North Face. What they endured only Alpine guides can possibly imagine. Frostbitten and exhausted, these men are now among the immortals of mountaineering. I think there should be a slot on the radio every week just playing old, like, British Pathé clips. What has happened to that accent? Uh, that accent doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't. <laughs> For people who do love them, you know you can go online and there's huge websites that just devote it to, to, to these types of clips. And you can find them talking about anything. Yeah, they're always talking about Southern Era. In Southern Era. <laughs> yeah, Southern Era. Yeah, no, Paddy. <laughs> Good man, Paddy. Uh, wow. Paddy is here in studio. Donald, how are you? It's good to be here. Good to be here. Uh, we're not talking about any of those male mountaineers they referred to in that clip. Uh, they were. We we're talking about uh, one of our own, actually, mm. this week. Uh, not alone boasting one of the finest names in Irish history, Lizzie LeBlonde. <laughs> that is a great name, Brilliant. isn't it? Brilliant. Lizzie LeBlonde. She was an adventurer, a mountain climber, one of the world's first female filmmakers. She travelled all over the world. Uh, she founded the Ladies Alpine Club, encouraging women to make the ascent to the top of the mountains. And she did it all in the skirt and in the face of much criticism from men who felt mountains were there were no place for the ladies. Uh, This is just incredible. She's one we should say maybe at the outset um, of one of many Irish explorers. Yeah, and and we have an amazing, amazing legacy of explorers, climbers, adventurers in this country. I mean, we gave the world the brilliant Tom Crean, what a man he was. You know, one of Kerry's greatest men, the hero of the endurance. Uh, Aaron Shackleton, of course. You know, Shackleton was fundamentally... He was Anglo-Irish. He was, he was a Brit yeah. at heart. But he was a Kildare man. And then we have this amazing he was well- woman. Wellington's Irish. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, well, you never actually said that, believe it or not. It's one of those great enduring urban myths. Uh, I may have been born in a stable, but just because you're born in a stable the doesn't Daniel make O'Connell you... Daniel O'Connell said, said it. quoted it about him. O'Connell said it. But uh, he didn't Maybe Shackleton it, yeah. had a bit of that in him too, though. Uh, and then there's this amazing woman, you know, Lizzie LeBlanc. What a name. And it's not a widely known story, but what put it in my head was last week we did in histories on historically overlooked female sporting figures. And the reason I chose that was that, you know, the heroics of the Irish hockey team. But, you know, forget about the playing field and the running track. This woman today is about, you know, this is a story about someone who thought a mountainside uh, was a woman's place. She did it in the earliest days in a skirt because contemporaries were horrified uh, at the idea of a lady pretending to be a man on the side of a mountain. And she documented what she saw. And this person makes a massive contribution, I think, towards the role of women in mountaineering. And as our subjects tend to be, she's an Irish woman. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the background who was Lizzie LeBlanc often when we talk about women on this slot they tend to come from quite aristocratic backgrounds because they were, they were the women who had the ability you know, to explore and to yes. do what they wanted to do and she was a woman of incredible means I mean Elizabeth Hawkins Whitshead born in Dublin 1860 raised at the kind of magnificent Killincarrick house in Greystones and a childhood that's very very privileged I mean it leads her to high London society she marries a British army officer Fred Burnaby and you know, it's a kind of typical Anglo-Irish stuff really you know mm. her background from a, a comfortable easy youth in Ireland, adolescence in Ireland, to joining High London Society. Her husband died at war. And her, her life is kind of difficult to be to follow because this woman's married three times, which is quite amazing in, in the Victorian age, and is always written about, but she's always publishing under you know, her married name, whatever that may be at one moment in time. So following her... Uh, is kind of difficult. But she's born in Ireland, but I suppose comes to prominence in high London society. So so the husband, the first husband, goes off and dies in the war. Uh, she suffers then some of her own health problems. And this plagued, leads her off to Europe. Plagued by health problems. And she travels Europe kind of seeking assistance for a lung problem. And, and the belief was that the, there was nothing quite like it, like the open air. 
So that brings her to, to Switzerland in 1881 and that begins really this story in earnest. It's this love affair with, with mountaineering. For her, the mountains offered many, many things. The fresh air was a tonic if you were sick in any way. But there was also a sense of liberation uh, in her own words, she said, I owe a supreme debt of gratitude to the mountains for knocking me from the shackles of conventionality. And when she returns home, she's a disciple, really, you know, of the yeah. Alps. Uh, and she's telling everyone in London society, this is what you need to do. You need to go out there, see these mountains, climb them. And it shocked people around her. I mean, one aunt wrote to her mother saying, stop her climbing mountains. She is scandalising all London and she looks like a red Indian. <laughs> what a great insult. Oh, my God. Uh, you mentioned last week uh, talking about uh, women on bikes uh, and the, the impact that had on Victorian society. I assume women halfway up the side of a mountain in the skirt. Were, people were appalled down well. by the sight of women on bicycles uh, in, in the Victorian age. And that was the beginning. Give them a bike and next thing they'll want to vote. You know, I think that was, <laughs> that was the view. And it's, all, it's been down here ever since it's, down, it's very good very very good very good and whatever about the impact of the bicycle the idea yeah, the idea of a woman on a bike was just or of a woman climbing the Alps never mind a woman mm. on a bike was shocking yeah, the Alpine Club founded in London in 1857 but it was pale male and stale I mean women weren't allowed into it they let women into the Alpine Club in London in the 1970s so this kind of aristocratic woman who's decided she likes mountaineering Lizzie LeBlanc what she does is brilliant she founds the Ladies Alpine Club in mm. 1907 you know I don't want to be a member as Groucho Marx said I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member so she went <laughs> yeah. off and set up her own one and uh, I mean it was a woman's alternative and, and women joined it in, in, in droves so convention you know affects the way she climbs you know she's wearing initially wearing skirts which is ludicrous, you know, when yes. you think of it today. Pretty far removed from a, a good North Face or Patagonia jacket, you know, not much use <laughs> on the side of a mountain uh, is a skirt. And on one occasion, a female climber in 1867, so before her, had to abandon an attempt at getting to the summit of a mountain because her skirt ballooned in the wind. So, I mean, it wasn't safe to climb yes. a mountain wearing a skirt. And Susanna Jones, a journalist in The Guardian, she wrote a lovely article about these early women mountaineer, mountaineers and the, 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 what they had to contend with. She said a common compromise was to wear a skirt or dress as you left the hotel, then rip it off at the base of a mountain and climb in more sensible garments. <laughs> Brilliant. And now, not content with just climbing the mountains, she wrote all about it too. And she wrote beautiful memoirs and they're fantastic, fantastic books. Uh, astonishing. More than half a dozen books on, on mountain climbing specifically. And they're really good because not only are they good on, on the drama of climbing a mountain, they're good on kind of Victorian society and what it was like to be, to be a woman in, in general. She says, the chief reason why women so seldom climbed 50 years years ago was that unless they had the companionship of a father, brother or sister, it was looked at as most shocking for a female to sleep in a hut. So there were all kinds of little things in society that made this difficult. And she climbed and climbed. She made over 100 ascents while living in Switzerland alone. And she travelled Europe constantly looking for kind of new challenges and new mountains. And I think the books read beautifully. They remind me of, uh, you know, Boys Own magazine. Yes. And those stories for young boys about war. They're kind of like that, you know. I mean, uh, this paragraph just struck me. We paused, you can, you can picture yourself on the mountain with this woman. We paused a moment to pull ourselves together for the final struggle. Hats were tied down, goggles discarded, the rope somewhat shortened, and grasping our axis and taking a deep breath, we stepped round the corner and into the full force of the shrieking hurricane. Conversation was impossible. We could only advance one by one, clinging on to the nearest projection and haul at the rope for the next member of the party to advance. You can see yourself on the side of that mountain there. Yeah, it's, it's incredible absolutely description. Absolutely incredible stuff and very unladylike, some would say. You mentioned the climber who had to abandon her attempt because the, the skirt billowed up in the wind. It was dangerous. And that was before Lizzie LeBlanc's day. So there were other female yeah. climbers, but she's kind of notable. Yeah, she's not the first woman to do it, but I think none of them enjoyed the same social standing as her. So it wasn't shocking in the same way. And I think what also makes this, what makes this story is that 
her unique contribution to this is that she documented what she, what she saw. So not only is she going up the mountains, she's deeply important to the story of Victorian photography and Victorian cinema because she brings cameras with her. Uh, I mean, these are, um, everyone has a camera in their pocket today. Bringing a camera with you in the Victorian age, it's a considerable you know, chunky piece to bring yeah. with you. Uh, and she, she captures these incredible views of what she sees and un, unrivaled views, really. It's been argued by some historians that she may be, quote, the world's first mountain filmmaker. She takes pictures of... Know, mountain peaks at close quarters, which people had never seen before, absolutely unimaginable to many in Victorian Britain. So for even those who couldn't afford a trip up the Alps, you know, the working class of Victorian Britain, the see these images must have been remarkable. It must have made the world feel that little bit smaller. And she ended way. up all over the world. Everywhere. I mean, everywhere. She saw as much of the world as she could in that age with a third and final husband, uh, Aubrey Leblond, who bestowed that great surname great name, upon her. Yes. She toured Egypt, Korea, China, Japan in 1912, this is the time before our Lingus and Ryanair, returns via Russia, which was on the verge of something massive. I mean, the final years of the Tsar, you know, Lenin breathing down his neck. Uh, when World War I erupts, she kind of gallantly works as a volunteer in a French Red Cross hospital and then travels through battle-scarred Europe just to see what it's like, you know, when the war is over, to see the horrible, horrible uh, evidence of the First World War. And I think, you know, she found that more harrowing than any mountain she climbed. Can you imagine the, the stench of death that hung over the continent? Uh, and she died in 1934, buried in London. But, I mean, Greystones is where she was raised. I think it's more than past time for some kind of fitting memorial in Greystones. And it seems there are plans to do that locally. And there's even a plan for a documentary because there's, there's just a fundamentally brilliant story yeah. you know, in this. Yeah, an amazing pioneer is what she was. And they showed, these women, they showed incredible physical strength, which is one thing. I mean, getting up and down a mountain takes great physical strength. <laughs> a lot of people listening to this have, have probably abandoned Crocpatrick, you know, yeah. <laughs> never mind the Alps. This is tough, tough stuff. And they did what many men who felt they couldn't handle the vote could only dream of doing. And there's a really great image uh, from 1912 of a female explorer. Another brilliant name of human history. Fanny Bullock Workman. Another female That climber. is just brilliant, isn't it? Where do these names come from? But she's up the Himalayas and she's holding a newspaper and it says, votes for women. So, you know, these women, they kind of smash the Victorian conventions of their day. And they're part of the broad story, not only of women's exploration, but arguably women's liberation. And um, we should be proud of her. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant story. My thanks to Donald Fallon, author of the Come Here To Me blog, book volume two, in the shops now.